Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Good morning, Christ Community Church. Oh, time changes stink, don't they? Um, you know, I know things are so partisan and divided in D.C., but can Congress just get together and get rid of daylight savings time, please? Can we all agree on that? Um, a couple things. Uh, first of all, now as the pandemic winds down, we're going to try to get small groups going again. Of course, we do have men's and women's uh, Bible study, so there are those things out there, but we'll, we'll try to get those going, and, and now that people aren't um, uh, freaking out when somebody walks into their house and all that other kind of stuff, so that'll be coming along. Um, uh, I'm flying solo this weekend. Megan um, is in Florida, and before you say, oh, poor baby, um, she's, uh, she's there for work, and um, her sister was nice enough to drive her up in the snow and ice on Friday night, and she got a hotel at the airport, and she gets to the gate, and all flights to Florida are canceled because of thunderstorms. So she finally gets a flight to Charlotte, and then after about a six-hour layover, she then finally gets a flight to Jacksonville, but that's about three and a half hours away from where she needed to be the next morning at 8 o'clock with a time change. So she drove an hour and a half, two hours last night to get to her hotel and uh, woke up at the crack of dawn to drive another hour and a half this morning uh, to meet some folks at 8 o'clock uh, in Boca Raton. And so, you know, she's going to have one of those weeks. But um, that's where she's at. She'll be back on Thursday, and then she's got to turn around and and head to uh, Indiana, I believe, for another series of fundraising dinners and all that other kind of stuff. So be praying for her. She travels and, and all that other kind of stuff. Um, she's been to Florida, but I don't think she's ever driven in Florida. And some of, those, some of those cities can be interesting. Kind of think like New Boston times a thousand, right? It's kind of like that. Um, and, and let's face it, the, the population of Florida is about 50%, 120 and, you know, I always argued the state flag of Florida should just be a tuffle of gray hair and two, like, wrinkled knuckles on a steering wheel. Um, it gets interesting down there. Well, we are still in Proverbs. We'll be in Proverbs until Easter. We're going to be in today, Proverbs 26. So if you want to open your app or open your Bible, whatever, Proverbs 26 is where we're going to be. Um, and we'll be 18 through 28, verses 18 through 28. That's where we'll be this morning. Um, Gary Harrison was here last night. Um, I love him, but I'm glad he's not here this morning to give me flack about Kentucky losing yesterday. That's all right. Ohio State got beat a long time ago. So um, that and, well, at least Duke lost, and that always makes me feel better. Um, it eases the pain a little bit. Proverbs 26, 18 through 28. Now, remember, and this is going to sound redundant, but this section of Proverbs as we go through 18 to 28 is highly proverbial in the sense that it seems like there's a paragraph addressing one thing and then a paragraph addressing another thing and a paragraph addressing another thing, and it just seems kind of random scattershot. But what I'm going to argue is it isn't. Um, now, one of the things you have to keep in mind whenever you're looking at the Bible, you remember that every single book in our Bible is at least more than 2,000 years old. 
All right, you got to remember that. And times and culture change. It just, it just does. Um, the, the culture has changed so much, you know, just in my lifetime. I was born in 1972, and just, you know, from the 90s on, things have just changed at a whirlwind pace. Think about how much they've changed in more than 2,000 years. And here with Proverbs, you're talking about thousands of years before, or maybe close to about seven, 800 years before that. So you're talking about close to 3,000 years. And the Hebrews did something that we don't do. The Israelites did something we don't do anymore. They wrote in a style, one of them was called a chiism. A chiism is this weird thing where it's like half an X, and they'll make a point here that's at the top, and then a point, the same point at the bottom, a point here, same point next to bottom, point here, same point right there, and then the main point in the middle. And all those points actually kind of hang together with that central point. Does that make sense? And it's a way that they could see this reading Hebrew. And if you learn Hebrew, not that I recommend it, but if you learn it, you, you can see it. You can see how it kind of goes boom, 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 bam. And that way you know what the writer's main point is. So this is going to seem kind of scattershot all over the place. And it's going to seem like it repeats itself. And it does. Now, I have said many times, every word of the Bible is the word of God. Every word of God is true. But if God repeats himself, you really need to pay attention. So here we go. Proverbs 26, 18. Just as damaging as a madman shooting a deadly weapon is someone who lies to a friend and then says, I was only joking. A couple things here. First things first. When the Bible casts a negative in that kind of light, what it's saying is that what you need to be, of course, is the opposite. Which means, of course, you shouldn't lie to a friend. But if you do, you need to own up to it. Now, I, I'm willing to bet every single person here. I mean, if you had to stand before God and swear, there's not a person here who has been 100% honest their entire life. Now, I've said this before. For those of you, you married men... I don't think women do this on purpose, but our wives turn us into liars. Right? Because, see, this is how this, this, this goes. If your wife asks you, does this look good on me? Now, if you say yes and you don't mean it, and then they go out, they've always got that one girlfriend that's like, mm, no, I wouldn't have done that. Now, do they say anything to that girlfriend? No. Guess what they say when they get home? How could you have let me go out that way? If you say, if you're honest and you say, nah, this is, this is not you, doesn't look good, what do you know? There is no right answer to that. And the worst is this. You've heard me say this several times. Honey, I hate this. Anytime I see Megan in front of a mirror and I hear honey, I automatically pray one of you calls me. 
because I know it's coming. Does this make me look fat? Is it sinful to fake a heart attack at this moment? Um, Because again, no right answer. If you say yes, are you saying I'm fat? No, honey. If you say no, then again, what happens? There's that girlfriend. You guys turn us into liars. Stop it. Don't ask. All right? This is what you do. If you've got an iPhone, go ahead, FaceTime that friend, and just go, what do you think? No? Okay. Boom. Leave us out of it. We don't know anyway. But if you sin, you need to own up to it. This is one of the things, you know, you learn very, very shortly into marriage. One, and I try to tell this to every couple before they get married. One, both of you will screw up. You will make mistakes. Some of us on a daily basis. When you do, what is the worst thing you can do in response? Lie. Just on it. Because about three out of four wives I have found hate the lie almost, if not more, than the act. So just own up to it. And I understand why we don't own up to it. We're afraid of it. And here's why we're afraid. This is what our society has done. And you've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. Doctor, I heard this from Dr. Tim Keller, and I think he's absolutely correct. In our society, if you get caught in a lie, you are viewed as what? A liar. But when you lie, it's complicated. Is it? If you've lied, someone lies to you, they should own up to it. And if they do, that's not a liar. That's just another sinful human being, and you should forgive them. But if you do it, if you just say something stupid, and if you talk enough, you eventually will say something stupid. And, and when you do, just own up to it. Just don't try to write it off. I was only joking. It's not a big deal. Whatever. Don't do that. Just say. And I know this for some reason in our culture, this is so difficult to say. Two words. I'm sorry. Even better. Add three more. I was wrong. I don't know why that is so difficult for people to do today, but for some reason, it is. And Christians need to kind of lead the way. Verse 20. Fire goes out with wood, and arguments or quarrels disappear when gossip stops. Now, I'll come back to that one because it's going to be repeated 21. A quarrelsome person starts fights as easily as hot embers light charcoal or fire lights wood. Now, I could go on to say how pointless arguing with people are, especially today and especially over social media. You've already heard me say that many times. But I'm pretty sure that arguments, period, are pointless. 
Conversations can be valuable. Arguments never go anywhere. You need to keep in mind a couple things. Number one, now this is just my opinion. I don't have proof, but I'm pretty sure this is accurate. Is there any reason for an adult to raise their voice to another adult with the exception of some impending danger? The answer is no. I think the only reason God gave us the ability to shout was to let somebody with earbuds know that a train is coming and they're on the tracks. That's it. There's no other reason to shout. There's no reason to shout at your spouse, your parents, your friends. No reason. And I want you to think about this. Maybe you're the exception that proves the rule. But honestly, when you've had arguments, real arguments with your spouse, your parents, your friends, whatever, co-workers, real arguments, has it ever ended this way with the other person going, thank you so much. I never thought of it that way. This has been enlightening. You know you're right. Does it end that way? So what's the point? What's the point? There's no point. You can have civil conversations, but arguments go nowhere. And I still remember this. I don't remember much of what my dad says. But I remember him telling people again and again and again, I steal it for marriage counseling or when's pre-marriage counseling. He always tells them this. He says, look, you need to understand something. You can live in peace or you can be right. But you can't be both. Choose one. You just choose one. There's an author by the name of Donald Miller. And here's something that if, if it starts with a conversation and then it starts to build into an argument, what do you do? Here's something to keep in mind. Uh, Donald Miller is a Christian author. He's kind of gone off the rails in the last few years, as many have for some reason. But his early books are worth reading. And in one of his early books, he talks about being home in Texas. And he's talking to an uncle. And they're talking about uh, a news item. And it goes from a conversation. Slowly, the uncle starts to raise his voice, get irritated. And it's Thanksgiving. There should be signs at every family Thanksgiving. No political discussions allowed. It just makes it miserable, does it not? And so they're having a political session. starts to get heated, and Donald Miller just leans over to his uncle and says, You know what? You know I love you, right? So let's just have this conversation some other time. That's called defusing the situation and letting it go. Because too often, even mature Christians get into discussions that turn into arguments, and they may win the fight in their mind, but they've lost the war. Isn't it better to lose an argument and keep an opening to bring someone to Christ? Verse 22 
Here we go again. I told you, come back. Rumors are dainty morsels that seek, sink deep into one's heart. Rumors. Gossip. And I have I've seen it so many times in the church, outside of the church. It seems everyone, Christians aren't immune from it. For some reason, our sinful nature hardwires so many of us to crave gossip, rumors, unfounded stories, stories without any evidence. Did you hear about such and such? But the Bible was very clear. We're not supposed to engage in that. Now, I don't know if it's, it's still around. Um, I remember as a kid that I was born in 72. By the 80s, the best-selling newspaper in the United States was not USA Today. It was not the New York Times. It was not the Washington Post. It was the National Enquirer. My mom will kill me for this, but her mom, my grandmother, God rest her soul, she believed everything in there. I just, I just couldn't believe it. And sometimes just because, you know, I, I was just a little jerk, I would sometimes, you know, be front page, such and such getting a divorce. And by the way, the National Enquirer kind of missed all the big stores the 80s we know now, right? I mean, I don't know, Bill Cosby? They were always about, you know, the, you know, the Reagans secretly getting divorced inside the White House. And my grandma would repeat this, and so three months later, hey, what happened to that divorce, Grandma? Oh, it's coming, I'm sure. It was in the paper. The paper. Now, I personally, when I was a kid, I will confess, there was one gossip rag that I would buy. Not because I believed it, because I thought it was hysterical. Do you remember the Weekly World News? No? That's the one that tried to outdo the National Enquirer on craziness. Like, you know, I was kidnapped and forced to be Bigfoot's love slave for six months. And there was the ongoing story about Bat Boy. You don't remember Bat Boy? How much were you drinking in the 80s, guys? Goodness. You know, it's all nonsense, and now we've replaced it with, I guess, TMZ or, or, or whatever. But, but the simple fact is you should never believe anything without concrete evidence, and you should never say anything without concrete evidence. The Bible goes so far as to say not to level charges against anyone unless there are two eyewitnesses. Two. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, because I've, I've had this come, back, come at me. It's like, well, you know, you can't have two eyewitnesses all the time to everything bad that happens. No, you can't. But God sees it. You don't need to take care of what God will take care of. Romans makes that very clear. If somebody has sinned and they're unrepentant about it or whatever, God will take care of that. You don't need to worry about it. 
God has basically set up a system where, yeah, a lot of people will get away with a lot of things in our eyes, but he says, he, basically what God is saying is, it is better for somebody to get away with a secret sin than it is for my people to accuse an innocent person of something they didn't do. And the Bible takes this seriously. Very seriously. Jesus himself had to face this, did he not? Look at how the Pharisees talked about him. Oh, he's this, he's that, he's doing this, he's doing that. None of it was true. Watch the gossip about anyone. I don't care if they're non-Christian. I don't care if it's your worst enemy. The simple fact is, Christ died on the cross to rescue you from an eternity you don't want, and he's not asking too much in return. Verse 23. Smooth words may hide a wicked heart, just as a pretty glaze covers a clay pot. People may cover their hatred with pleasant words, but they're deceiving you. They pretend to be kind, but don't believe them. Their hearts are full of many evils. While their hatred may be concealed by trickery, their wrongdoing will be exposed in public. There's a number of things there, and again, it's going to come back and repeat a part of this again here at the end. But, and I'll talk about this in a second, about people who just flatter and lie and, and basically are butt kissers. And I, I, I think I've got a master's degree in, in recognizing behind kissers because I worked in Hollywood for three years and D.C. for two years. And, man, you want to talk about just an army of them. They're everywhere. But, you know, what I learned the hard way, because I told you, when I went out to L.A. and to Hollywood when I was a teenager, when I ran away from home, went out to live with my brother Brian, I was naive enough to think that because Hollywood was filled with artists who were educated, it would be this wonderland. And what I discovered very quickly is you've never met more shallow people in your entire life. And I also learned this, something I should have learned through common sense but didn't. And it's what's being hinted at here. Don't trust necessarily a person's words, especially if they're telling you how wonderful you are. Trust their actions. Actions always speak louder than words, do they not? Sure. How many of you, probably only about a third, how many of you, though, remember Jerry Lewis? Yeah, the telethons, the movies, all that other kind of stuff. I, I'll tell you this. He had, and this is more than two eyewitnesses confirming this, he had one of the worst reputations in Hollywood. He was considered arrogant. He was considered difficult, especially with fellow actors, producers, and directors, and studio people. He was just flat out, and the media, oh my goodness. Because I'm telling you, you can go on YouTube, and you can search Jerry Lewis interview. And it's like one of the last interviews he ever did. And you can just tell he was just in a mood. And he's sitting there, 
And this young reporter goes, so, Mr. Lewis, you know, what about this? This is, he goes, yes, next question. You turn what's supposed to be a 30-minute interview into about a five-minute interview, because all we do is, no, next question. He could be that way. Yet, here's another story that was told. And this was told by the person who was involved. Young guy trying to make it in comedy, has a family, a wife and a son, living in New Jersey, not far from where Lewis grew up. He wants to be a stand-up comedian, but he's not having a whole lot of success. But Jerry Lewis saw his act and really liked it. And he wrote him a note and said, here is my address and here is my telephone number in Beverly Hills. If you ever make it to Los Angeles, you call me. And if I'm home, you just come on over. It's like, oh, okay. After a few more months of toil and all the other kind of stuff and still feeling like he wasn't going anywhere, he finally decided to take every penny he had, put his family in a car, drive across country to Los Angeles, pulls into a cheap flea bag motel in Hollywood, picks up the payphone. Do you remember payphones? And he picks up the payphone and he calls the number. Jerry Lewis is home. He says, you probably won't remember me. He says, I remember you. I gave you my note. I gave you my telephone. Come on over. I'm here all day. Come on over. So he comes over, and his car is on its last legs. Jerry Lewis comes out to meet him, looks at the car, says, that thing made it across country? He says, yeah. Where are you staying? He told him. He said, that's, that's a dangerous place. That's a dangerous part of town. You got family. She said, yeah. He said, okay, two things. One, I've got about 15 cars in the garage. Just go pick one. He said, which one? He said, I, I don't care. He said, I don't know if you've read the newspapers, but I'm rich. Just go grab you one. And he was. He was very rich. Did you know that if you go onto a film set today, you'll have the camera, but then there'll be a monitor next to the camera for the director to have a second set of eyes on it. Do you know who invented that? Jerry Lewis. Because he was paying for his own movies out of his own pocket, and he said, this is ridiculous that the cinematographer gets to see it, but then the director, and it was usually Jerry Lewis, had to wait to that night to look at it and see if he had to reshoot it. He said, if I could just get a monitor running from that, a second camera, so I could look at it, then we'd know if we had to do it again right on the spot. That's going to save me money. And so he invented it. And so and he goes, just go pick a car. And he goes, I'll be right back. Well, you go look. I'll be, I'm going to make a phone call. So he goes and he picks out a car, and there wasn't anything there cheaper than a Mercedes. And he picks out a car, and he pulls it out of the garage, and Jerry comes out and goes, oh, yeah, that's a good one. He said, now, here's an address. I want you to go there. It's in a decent part of town. It's a safe part of town. I've rented you and your family in a house for the next six months. And then how much money did he raise for muscular dystrophy over the years? So what do we make of that? What I make of that is, I, I think, if I had to guess, and from some reports, people who knew him, that Jerry Lewis had a really difficult childhood. In fact, he never really had a childhood. His parents were vaudeville performers. They kicked him on stage when he was six. He never had a childhood. He never stopped performing. 
And he kind of just kind of grew resentful of, of people in power who kind of make him, you know, looked at him as like, come on, dance for us, monkey boy, you know, that kind of thing. But he always felt pity for anybody who was struggling and hurting, and he did everything to help them. So what do we do with that? I would say at his heart, he was a compassionate person because actions speak louder than words, don't they? I get this all the time, and this shouldn't happen, I understand. I'll, I'll, I'll run into somebody who people tell me all the time, they claim to be a Christian, they're a churchgoer, but they're just so grumpy. There are going to be a lot of grumpy people in heaven. Again, I love the way C.S. Lewis put it. He said, the question is not, why is the Christian grumpy? The question is, how much grumpier they'd be if they weren't Christians. Verse 27. If you set a trap for others, you will get caught in it yourself. If you roll a boulder down on others, it will crush you instead. What is God saying there? God is saying there, never try to embarrass somebody. Never try ever to intentionally embarrass another human being. Don't do it. And by the way, husbands and wives, your spouse is not the exception. I remember, God rest their souls again, going down to my, my grandfather, my step-grandfather on my, um, my mom's side. He was one of the sweetest men I've ever known. Um, my grandmother was the biggest nag I've ever known. We took a trip to Florida. It's my grandparents in the front and my sister Amy and I in the back. I think I was 13, I think 12 or 13 years old. And Amy and I would just crack up because he'd be driving, but my grandmother would be barking how to drive. For what, what is it, 18-hour drive? Do it, you're going too fast. Do it, you're going too slow. Do it, you're too close to that other car. Do it. And my papa was such a good person, he'd start singing the nags. Do we, do we, do we, do we, do we? <laughs> do we going too fast? You know. You know, and it's in front of his grandkids. He played it off, but it, it's just, you don't, don't try to embarrass someone. And often, because often God will do this, if you wickedly try to do that, watch what happens. Because sometimes it'll backfire immediately. As a history buff, I was reading a story. I don't know how many of you remember this from school, but at one time, Napoleon and the French tried to basically conquer all of Europe, including Russia. And Napoleon was finally defeated by the British at Waterloo. A couple years after Britain had defeated France, one of the top British generals, who had never lost a battle in, that, in those engagements with the French, was, it, was in Paris and invited to a party by a wealthy uh, Parisian woman. And there were French generals there who had lost to him, and they decided they were going to show him something. So all these generals, six, eight of them, they decided 
As soon as he was announced and walked in, they would immediately turn their back on him. So he walks in, everybody looks, and then the French generals turn their back on him. The hostess is incredibly embarrassed and, and, and grabs the British general's hands and says, I'm so sorry, that was so rude. To which the general said, loud enough that everyone in the party could hear it, Oh, no worries, madam. I'm more used to seeing their backside than their front side. Watch that. You should never try to embarrass somebody else. 28. A lying tongue hates its victims, and flattering words causes ruin. I, I can't stand butt kissing, as I said. You can't trust a butt kisser. You can't trust a thing they say. People are just constantly telling you how wonderful you are. They never have any constructive criticism for you. That person is not being honest. Because the Bible is very clear, only one person in history has ever been perfect, and it ain't you. So you've done something wrong. You typically do something wrong every day. And if somebody is around you, and if they say, and they should say it gently, you know, you may want to think about doing it this way, or you did this, and really it needs to be done this way, or you said this, and it really hurt this other person's feelings, or, 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 or whatever. That is an honest person, especially if they're gentle in the way they're doing it. If all they ever do is tell you how wonderful you are, they are A, a liar, and B, they want something from you. You are a step to the next person they can butt kiss and get up, work up the ladder. You are nothing more than a step on a ladder. Watch out for those kind of people. They are worthless. I mean, you've seen The Office, right? You really want to be around a Dwight all the time? If you're Michael Scott... They only, they just tell you what you want to hear. And, and also, if you like that, if, if you really like that, I mean, you just, oh, man, you love to have your backside shined. You just, ah, uh, makes you feel so good. Well, then, here's the problem you have. You are seeking your identity in something other than Jesus Christ. You are seeking your value, your worth, your identity in other people. And first of all, that's a path to ruin. And second, it's sinful. Christ, I don't think Christ descended into hell in those three days, but I do believe on the cross he absorbed it. And he did it for you. And so your identity, your value, your worth, is as a redeemed son or daughter of God. And everything else is secondary. Does that make sense? Just be honest with people and seek honesty from people. You may not always like it. That's okay. But if you study history... And I miss having Pat April here when he retired and moved south. That was, you know, 
because Pat was my, was my history buddy. We would text back and forth and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Do you see this documentary? Have you read this? And all that kind of stuff. And, and Pat and I were both history majors, and both of us know that history's greatest people, the people who truly made a difference in history, were always honest people. They always had a reputation for honesty. Look at Abraham Lincoln. What did they call him? Honest Abe. He was brutally honest. Yeah. I love one time a, some woman wrote him, a, when he, he changed his position on slavery, he initially ran on a platform of stopping the growth of slavery, the expansion of, of slavery. He wanted to keep it in the South, no, never in the North, never out West. That's what he ran on. But then he got to know Frederick Douglass, and he got to know other abolitionists, and Frederick Douglass largely convinced Abraham Lincoln he needed to emancipate all slaves everywhere. And he said, so he did. He issued the Emancipation Proclamation, saying that henceforth all people held in bondage shall be hereforth forever free. And he got a letter from a woman, and the woman said, you're two-faced. And he wrote back. He said, ma'am, honestly, if I were two-faced, would I have chosen this one? Winston Churchill was that way as well. Again, sometimes brutally honest. Have you ever seen the British House of Commons on like C-SPAN or something? It, <laughs> you thought our Congress was nasty. You know, the Brits have this reputation for being real polite. That ain't true. You watch Parliament sometime. They play it on C-SPAN on Sunday nights, and every once in a while I'll catch just like five minutes of it, and it's hysterical. And they have one party on one side and the other party seated on the other side, and they basically take turns insulting each other. That's all it really is. And the prime minister is, the, the prime minister, what we would call the president, is the leader of the majority party. And so, but he's still considered a member of parliament, so he has to come and attend parliament. And so Churchill would come and attend parliament. And he's sitting there, and one member of parliament from the other side got up and said, Mr. Churchill, must you fall asleep whenever I speak? And Churchill cracked open an eye and said, must I? No, it's completely voluntary. And that's the kind of debate they have. But they, when they were serious, when they were speaking to generals and their cabinet and voters and so forth, they were known for their brutal honesty. And throughout history, those who have been on the side of the angels have really, really worked, to be honest. And it takes work, because sometimes people will ask you a question, and you may know the answer, but you know that the answer may hurt that person's feelings, and you've got to take a minute to think about, how do I say this without stinging them more than it has to and get the point across? And that takes work. That takes a minute. And sometimes you just have to tell people, give me a minute. That's okay. That's okay. So the whole gist of God's word here is what? Be careful what you believe, be very, very careful in what you say, and be willing to admit your mistakes. And again, this all comes down to what? I preached on it two weeks ago. This is basically part two of what two parts are. Counselors who have studied this say that the people who are careful in what they believe 
They don't believe anything without evidence. They don't speak about anything without evidence. They're slow to speak anyway. And they're willing to admit their mistakes when they screw up. They are good listeners. Now, how do you know if you're a good listener? The general rule is this. You listen 80% of the time. You talk only 20% of the time. Tell them I said hi. That's part of it. The second part is this. If you really want to know, and there used to be a guy in Columbus who taught this, if you really want to know if you're a good listener, here's the telltale sign. When someone is speaking to you, they finish, can you repeat what they said almost verbatim back to them? If you can't, you're not a good listener. If you can, you are. But again, this takes work. It's a discipline. It's just a discipline. I, um, back before I started a PhD program and I actually had um, spare time, one of the things I would like to do is uh, the first of the month I would go to Amazon and Amazon would have their monthly book recommendations. And if I found something that just sounded a little different, a little weird, a little off, fiction or nonfiction, I'd buy it. And it turned out that some of those things helped me quite a bit. Um, I remember I bought a book, believe it or not, I bought a nonfiction book about a gerontologist at Cambridge University. I'm like, why would you do that? Well, here's why. First of all, the gerontologist is an eccentric, a brilliant eccentric. Drinks nothing but Guinness, has gray hair down to here. He's a weird dude. But everyone agrees, a brilliant one. And I read that book, not knowing what I was in for, and here's something that he argued. He said, actually, human beings, on average, this is what he said, human beings, on average, can live up to 1,000 years. He says, there is part of the DNA that triggers aging. And if you can ever figure out how to switch that, the person would live on average for a thousand years. And he said, why on average? He said, well, accidents, or car accidents, whatever. He said, those things will happen. But no, it is absolutely possible for the human being to live a thousand years. Now, why did I find that interesting? Go back and read the Old Testament. How long did Adam live? You see what I'm saying? He says, no, that's possible. And this guy's an atheist. So I love to read stuff like that. And at this one time I read this book, and it was actually recommended to me also by one of my professors in seminary. It's called Tepper Isn't Going Out. It's a short novel about this guy named Tepper. And he has, his hobby is he lives in New York, and his hobby is to find really good parking spots in New York City, pull into them, feed the meter for the maximum amount of time, and then sit and read the newspaper. And because he's just sitting there reading the newspaper in a really nice parking spot, and if you've been to Manhattan, you know what an ambitious goal that is. I've spent an hour looking for one lousy parking spot in Manhattan. He finds a spot, somebody will inevitably come up in another car and wave at him and say, hey, are you leaving soon? And his response is where the title is, Tepper isn't going out. 
And he just sits there and reads the paper. Eventually, the media pick up on this. And so, they do a story on Tepper. And people, because they're in Manhattan, think that this guy must know something that they don't. And so, they begin to seek him out. And if they find him in one of these spots, they knock on the door. Mr. Tepper, can I sit with you? And Tepper says, sure. And they sit in the passenger seat. And he's sitting there looking at the paper. And after a while, every single one of them just begin to pour out all their problems, everything on the Tepper. And when they get up and leave, they feel wonderful. Even though Tepper never says anything more profound than, that's always something. Why? They feel they've been heard. They feel like they've been heard. Makes an enormous difference, but it's a discipline. And it's part of a discipline that comes from your heart. I read a story about a um, Native American who worked for the Bureau of Native American Affairs in Washington, D.C. And he had a friend who was a member of Congress. And they met for lunch in downtown Washington, D.C., and they were walking back to the Capitol. And if you've ever been in Washington, D.C., especially when Congress is in session, you know how crowded, how noisy. I mean, in downtown D.C., you've got not just incredible traffic, hundreds of thousands of people going everywhere. You've got the metro sub subway system making all kinds of racket noise. You've got Reagan National right downtown, so you've got planes flying overhead. It's noisy. People talking, people on cell phones. And they're walking along the street, and all of a sudden the Native American goes, stops, and he goes, a cricket. And the congressman looks at him and says, what? He said, a cricket. He says, what are you talking about? And he bends down, and he pushes some bushes apart, and there's a cricket. And the Congress said, how in the world, with all of this racket going on, did you hear a cricket in a bush? He says, well, let me show you something. He says, I'm going to do something, and I want you to look around and notice what all these people on their phones and having conversations all kind of stuff will do. He said, okay. He reached into his pocket. He grabbed a handful of change, and he drops it on the ground, and every single person turns around. And the Native American looks at the congressman and says, you will always hear and listen for what you value. Jesus Christ died in our place for, us, for our sins, so that if we have come to faith in him and salvation through him, we are to love our God, our heart, mind, body, soul, everything, and we're to love each other as we love ourselves. And we listen to those we love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. 
as difficult as it is to hear and realize that it's not confronting others but ourselves. May everyone here who has faith in you, who has been redeemed by your son's blood, may they love others as they love themselves and show that love by truly listening to them. If we listen for what we value, may we listen for our brothers and sisters in Christ who need us, who are in pain, who just need an ear for an hour or whatever it takes. May all of us worship you with everything we have and part of that worship, listening to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, first things first, one quick thing. I don't know if you know what time of year this is if you're not a college basketball fan. But over the next few weeks, you're not allowed to have a ministerial crisis. Okay? Right? We're, we're all agreed, right? You're going to drive safely. You're going to eat well. You're going to get lots of sleep. You're going to be nice to each other at least until March Madness is over, okay? I'll take that as a yes. Second, God bless you. God goes with you. See you next time. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.